0: What's going on, y'all? It's your boy, Yadon your Israel, aka Liddy Fontaine, back again with another episode of Lit, the premier platform for all things literary, swaggy, and everything in between. Today's guest is my man, Jess Rao, who I first met uh, almost over two years ago at the new school, and he was talking his shit, and I challenged him on his shit, and since then we became friends. That's right. And we're going to talk about what that friendship is, what his writing is about, and just everything else we could chop it up about. So thank you, Jess, for pulling up. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for inviting me. So the first thing we got to do, I don't know if you know the episodes or anything like that, the mm-hmm. rundown, but we do the literary. We do the swag. Yeah. The yeah, swag yeah. camp. So I need you to stand up and curate the swag for us. Probably are we doing top to bottom, bottom to top? What? Are we, okay. Around, around. Okay. So where are we starting? Where
1: are we starting? let's start with the shoes. Let's start with the shoes. Okay. I just got these yesterday. Ooh, what's those? They're uh, Nike Air Sock Fly Racers. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I saw these in uh, Kiff on Bleecker Street. Oh, man. He
0: kiffed up. You kiffed up. I like that. And
1: I uh, um, actually didn't get them there, but uh, I, saw, <laughs> I saw them there. I was inspired. Yeah. And, you know, I've been looking for a shoe like this that you can wear without socks because yeah. I really hate socks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I'm so happy with these, All right. they're okay. so comfortable. What about these jeans? Uniqlo. Okay. Uh, I love Uniqlo because they, uh, they do free alterations in the store. Oh, they do? And as a 5'5 five five man, <laughs> everything I buy has to be altered. It has to be altered. So they do free alterations and plus I love their stuff, it lasts a long time. Mm-hmm. The price is right. The price is right. Yeah. Hit, hit me with this. This is why we need the soundboard. So <laughs> the, the, the blazer. Good, the, oh, the blazer. The blazer. This is from Muji. Oh. Okay. And um, it weighs about three ounces or something. And I don't like know what that it's, means. It's, okay. It's it's uh, That, that means, means it's light. It's extremely light. Okay. And it basically doesn't wrinkle at all. It's like the perfect thing for traveling or just whatever. It basically we, it's like it's like nothing on your body. It's okay. so for like a hot day like today. Hmm. It's it's awesome. This is like my favorite garment. And cool. I don't think Muji makes them exactly like this anymore, so I don't know what I'm going to so do that's, with them. That's, that's, that's a one of none right now. It's a one of none. And then the shirt. You yeah, so, you know. Pop the shirt. Like, you
0: guys see the shirt. You guys see the full effect.
1: So, you know, like, you know, I'm a white guy with a beard who likes hiking and stuff, so I have a lot of North Face. I <laughs> like North Face. But I love Ghost Face Killer. Right. So this bring. I saw this online. This this brings brings your, the, it brings two, the two all together. It's all the loves together. Yeah, exactly. The
0: intersection of the swags. Exactly. I love it. All right. So, as you know, or you may not know, the Marducé is the literary uh, this literary equivalent of the gin and juice. So it's three parts Martinelli's, one part Duce, all parts delicious. Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna partake in that. So what Excellent. you're gonna do is part you're gonna pop your top mm-hmm. and you're gonna drink to the leaves. hmm
1: Okay. Right. Drink to the leaves. Yeah. are right. oh, you gonna cheers. Cheers. To let. Oh, I No, you guys yeah, we we
0: will Got my little adjunct of money, so I could afford to pay, pour a little bit more. Oh. Yeah, you drank goddamn
1: just... T- I'm thirsty. It's hot out there. No, yeah. It means I'm getting totally hammered. Yeah. This is Doucet? Is that, yeah. It, this, is, uh, this, this is Jay-Z's liquor. This is Jigga's... Uh, Jigga's liquor. Jigga's liquor choice. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think yeah. we have to toast again. Yeah, we do. To uh. 444. Right on. It's right pretty, on. It's a pretty good album.
0: You said pretty good, man. Come on.
1: That's good. Well, That's good. That's yeah. Good. Thank
0: you. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Let's get into it, man. You wrote one of <laughs> You wrote one of to in my eyes, one of the most uh response like intellectually responsible books about race. Okay. That's that's the best way I could frame it. I think we've had so many conversations about this book that I have to find a new way to talk about it for people who ain't here to come ain't privy to the Thank conversation. You. But the premise of this book is a Jewish white man goes to China, gets racial reassignment surgery Tha- as a, Thailand. Thailand, my bad. Thailand is racial reassignment surgery as a black man, but what's I always found fascinating about the book was that not always I'm not gonna say that I was kind of like who does white man think he is writing about black people but what this book is actually about is about why this man no longer wants to be white instead of why this man is trying to be black Mm. so it does that James Baldwin thing Mm. of instead of you know when he said he went to is not that he was going to to Paris he was just trying to get away from America Mm. and I saw that relationship that this man Martin is not trying to be black, he's just not, he's not trying to be white. Mm. And to me, that was the central question of the novel, mm. which is like very interesting because I had never thought about a novel as an essay. Mm. And so, want to paint, the, give, give, give the people just the mind of Jess Rao as it pertains to this novel.
1: This is what this is uh, what are the kind of uh, thinking that I've been working on and dwelling on uh, for my whole career, and it really it started with my first book, which is called *A Train to Lo Wu* about the two years I spent in Hong Kong, and a lot of that book, that book is also really a book about race in a different way. It's about Hong Kong being a place where many people come to and they feel they don't belong and they feel the sense of like slippage between where they came from and where they are now. Mm -hmm. It's a place of a lot of uh, plural identities. Even Hong Kong Chinese people have a kind of plural identity because they're Hong Kong people, they're Chinese people. Many of them have passports or citizenships or family overseas. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of a place, you know, sort of like New York is a a place where uh, many people come to and even the people who are from there, their lives are just, you know, full of kind of intersecting avenues, mm. just like the city itself. I like that. So that's, you know, that's been my fascination for my whole writing life, basically. And the older I get, the more I sort of process this stuff, the further back into my own experience of whiteness, it goes. Yeah. And so the more I... Um, see the you know the more i look into my own past and my own uh reading the reading i did as a kid there's all this kind of feeling of indeterminacy and this sort of question that resounds over and over what is whiteness yeah what does it mean to be white right what does it mean to be a white american what does it mean to be a white american man where is the like where is the place that that rests yeah and um you know for me the thing is there never is any place where it rests. And so that's the kind of existential And what do you mean position. by that? Like, there is no place where it rests? Well, it's like, you know, if you, if, you know, just in terms of my own experience. Yeah. Like, um, I'll give you an example. I was something I've just been writing about in an essay. Um, I used to, there was a time when I spent, so in, when I was about 10, 11 years old, when I spent some time, time hanging out with my cousins, who were from uh, South Dakota, where my father grew up. And these guys were like, they were, um, they, they were, you know, they were from a rural area. They were from the West. Mm. And they were like, you know, they had like mullets. And they, they were much older than I was. They were all in their 20s, early yeah. 20s. And, you know, they were, they had mullets. They drove Camaros. Mm. They were uh, totally radical Republicans. They were really racist. They loved, like, Rambo and Mad Max and stuff like that. For This is in the yeah. early 80s. And, yeah, and, so. <laughs> and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, they knew, like, all the lines from all the movies. And the time I spent hanging out with him was mostly, like, watching movies. Yeah. And so I got this, like, sort of curriculum from them <laughs> of, like, this... Is, because, like, everything they thought about it was, like, Animal House, Rodney Dangerfield... Uh, all this stuff. So that was like, you know, for a while, I, you know, and like, this is about the time that, like, the movie Top Gun came out. Oh, shit. You know, oh, like, no, the, no, no, the planes no. and all that stuff. So, like, Tom Cruise, like, that was, you know, from, for just like a minute of my life, like, that was what being a white American man was supposed to be. Mm. And I had this minute where I sort of bought into that.
0: So, if you could boil that down, if you could, from Rodney Dangerfield to Top Gun mm-hmm. and Camaro, what would, what would you, what language would you give the, that living like that whiteness.
1: Yeah, it's really, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think like in the 80s at that time, this is like the Reagan era, post-Vietnam era, there was really the sense that like white maleness had been sort of like embarrassed, shut down, castrated by the failure of Vietnam, uh-huh. the women's movement the you know that sort of the oil embargo and all the stuff that had happened in the 70s and there's really this feeling that like reagan was coming in and he was like reestablishing like american manhood uh-huh. like the rambo thing yeah but the interesting thing about that is that um you know that's it like Ram- if you look at rambo rambo is like first of all he's one guy yeah and it's all like reactive he's like lashing out yeah you know he's like striking back from a position of having been wounded yeah so it's this it's a sense of like this hyper assertive white masculinity that's all about like getting back what you took away from me
0: or get, get back what was taken
1: yeah get yeah it, getting back what other people yeah. it's like you know Clint Eastwood in the dirty Harry movies or Charles mm-hmm. Bronson in the day I was movies. I've been
0: watching like so I went to go see it this weekend with mm-hmm. a friend and I was watching the uh, trailers and Bruce Willis is in some movie Death Wish, they're bringing Death Wish back with Bruce, it's like the, you, you rehash, Seriously? yes, <laughs> so they're bringing like Death Wish back with Bruce Willis, which oh, is this very, is the, this is the time for it, but it's like, it's weird because isn't Die Hard like Death Wish adjacent, like isn't that like the more or less yeah. the same plot, but then you look at with those, more, more...
1: more technology, yeah, more yeah, but stuff. It's,
0: it's just like, you're thinking like the Death Wishes, the Die Hards, the, the lethal weapons, mm-hmm. the what else, the taken, yeah, like all these movies in which this this white like, man yeah. whose family is messed with, yeah, yeah. and so in the pursuit of justice, right. I'm going to do what the fuck I want, right, right, right. right. and this yeah. is like the premise of it, and I started like, you know, as I'm watching this, like the insidiousness of the narrative is like this, like white men believe, like there was a movie with Michael mm-hmm. Douglas, I don't know what the name of the movie oh, is, no. yes, yeah, where he just like loses his shit and yeah. he's like, I'm tired of playing he's by like the, the rules. White man who yeah, loses and, his shit. yeah. Yeah, and he's just yeah. like, I'm gonna start fucking shit up, start yeah. blowing shit up. Yeah. Like no one shoots him or nothing. Like he just goes throughout his whole day. Right. Just yeah. like everything was taken from me, thus yeah. I'm like reclaiming it. Yeah. And this yeah. is like the real narrative of all those movies, no matter mm-hmm. what, is
1: like it's like falling down, it's like the culmination of all yeah. those movies. Yeah, but to me, to me, it's I was thinking about this because I was thinking about in the context of working on this essay. Yeah, you can draw a straight line from Death Wish to the the ad that Donald Trump put in the paper about the Central Park Five. Oh shit! He put he put this ad in the paper that basically said like these kids are monsters and they deserve to die, and the city is in chaos, and said so this is right around the time of the Central Park Five and. and um, 1991 you can draw a straight line from death wish which was late 70s to that to his election because mm. the rhetoric is the same you know the country's out of control you know what he said in his uh, inaugural speech like the uh, carnage you know use the word carnage so there's a sense of like i am the one guy who's going to rescue you from like the carnage of mm. Of this country that's out of control, right? These the white man's birth,
0: yeah. Like the Rudyard Kipling, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's what I mean. Is like what's interesting is like when I started watching those movies from a different perspective, which is like not assuming that like I'm the person. Like I'm, I'm like you know, you watch John Wayne movies thinking you John Wayne. It's like, mm-hmm. oh no, you're the Indian in mm-hmm. this. You know, you're the Native American in this. Yeah. This read this 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 dramatization. Right. Right. And right. so I'm like. Switching that view is like, oh, I'm supposed to root for my own death. Yeah, which is very like it kind of yeah. shifts the perspective, and then when the perspective is shifted, like that's what allowed me to see more about these movies. Like, mm. you know, Angela Flournoy had came and we were talking about like the insidiousness of police films and what they're really teaching us to mm. normalize, which mm. is like every police film, it's always a cop who goes not above and beyond the call of duty, mm. but just like doesn't fucking listens at all. Like, they're breaking rules, they're, like, detaining witnesses, Mm. putting them in the back of, like, the trunk and shit. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, all made in this way of, like, in the pursuit of justice. Like, they could blow up houses, they could shoot people. Torture people. Yeah. Yeah. At at some point in old movies, Mm -hmm. especially Buddy cop films, their badges get Mm -hmm. taken, and they're, like, we're gonna do this shit anyway, right? And so, the whole thing is, like, when you see this real, and then what I really started paying to was the parallel between, like, wait, like, this person was told not to do this and he did it anyway mm-hmm. right and then what happens in the movies like the person who doesn't listen what they get put on desk duty and they get put on like traffic traffic patrol right. Right. and that's supposed to be like emasculating to them like that's they're right. not a real cop that's
1: right but it's like you still
0: have your fucking job and then like someone lost their life and mm-hmm. so when you when i start to see like the real world mirroring mm-hmm. of these fictitious plot lines mm-hmm. like the shit becomes too real and, like for, like, for that reason, like, a lot of these movies, I'm like, I can't fuck with them no more. Like, mm. I watch them with, with a different sense of, like, nah, this is not just a movie. This is, like, we're watching real life play itself out in this very, like, meta way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be fascinating to do a book on, um, like, the psychic life of police. You know, to do mm. a project about, like, what is it that this, what are the stories that, like, police... Get told about themselves as coolies because obviously, mm. like one of the stories they get told is the story of the person who goes like outside of the law. Right. That's like the Dirty Harry story. That yeah. You know, but then there's you know that there's it's 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 fascinating. There's this amazing movie that almost nobody uh, has seen from the late '90s called Copland with Sylvester Stallone as the main character. Oh, shit. And he's like this wounded, injured, depressed New Jersey local cop. In a town where everybody else is an NYPD policeman, somewhere in North Jersey. And it's all about him, like, discovering the underside of what it means to be a cop. Even though he, like, defies everybody and the whole sort of, like, culture of policing. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. It, it came to mind because um, the poet, Reginald Dwayne Betts, the poet and lawyer and, and He wrote that essay about getting, like, the, uh, trying to get the bar... Yeah, yeah exactly exactly so he's been he's been posting a lot of stuff on facebook about bruce springsteen and how he's never listened to bruce springsteen before and he really connects to bruce springsteen and he wrote about the album nebraska and that reminded me of how in the movie in in this movie copland uh sylvester stallone is this like wounded depressed cop listening to that album over and over it's just very like haunting it's bruce springsteen just like playing the guitar and singing his Really, really t- terrifying, sad songs. And I was thinking, like, you know, what is the like, you know, there's like obviously like a wounded, emasculated side to being a policeman, but what is it, you know, like mm. what, what you know, what is the like psychic life there? I because if so. you you know if you think about like the, you know, the cases of you know the cases like Michael Garner, or Eric, sorry, Eric, uh-huh. Eric Garner. Um, Mike Brown Michael Brown yeah Um, these cases you know ultimately it's about some individual you know a lot of it is like systemic practices right but there's also this moment where like one individual does something you know that is a distinct decision to kill somebody oh yeah and so like you know get and you know and the, the forces of the legal process the grand juries and all that really militate against ever understanding like what was happening what was the psychic process that led that policeman to kill that
0: person right because well the onus of the process is not to try to figure out why the person was killed the onus is on the person of why did it why was the person killable right right like right, right. what like what well, was he you know like right, thinking right, about right. like I was, you know yeah. I was at the event on thing Tuesday at the Schaumburg and um Claudia Rankin and him, the thing about like Darren Wilson saying he was t- t- scared mm. like, I believe him but why was he scared
1: well right and that's right exactly like, like what that's is exactly the what so
0: what is actually the fear and it's like we don't really as a culture yeah you know, I don't mean we like as a per- individual thing because it's like I think for myself I know what informs that fear I think is one of like the refusal to admit that the fear is real for a lot of people who claim they don't have it which is I think what happens a lot in this book is like you address a lot of those fears of, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that fear of feeling like you don't have power and only coming into that awareness when the fear is present right mm-hmm. so you deny this fear your whole life and this is when it's like systematic racism plays its place plays its part because this like our country and the way our society is structured has done so much to like remove the fear like Carting, carding off, like, zip codes and mm-hmm. making sure you don't see people of color in, in right. these real ways. And so yeah. now, so mm-hmm. much of this fear that you feel isn't real becomes real to you in the moment that you have to address it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the killing of that person is mm-hmm. in that person's mind. Like, the killing of a person of color yeah. in the white person's mind yeah. is killing the fear. But it's like, that's not the fear.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So in your mind, like, you know, it's like those horror movies, right? And, like, all these genres of films that we have in America that are so... Poignant for reasons beyond like the popularity of them. It's like I forced to like really study them. And like, what's the one of the, the themes of horror is that no matter how much you kill the thing, it comes back. Right. That's
1: right. That's right. Like the yeah. fear is never,
0: you know. It's like the,
1: the, the thing to be feared is always there. Is yeah. Like always still there. Right.
0: Right. And but the thing about it, right, it was like the fear is like it's actually something that's in you mm-hmm. and not any other person. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. transitioning into mm-hmm. the book, mm-hmm. um, or just. Bringing the book into conversation, what we're talking about is you talk about whiteness as an in body experience, as opposed to an out of body experience. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Which is really important. Yeah. it's really important to you know think about that as a you know as a moment to moment lived experience. Yeah. Um, there's a, something that Toni Morrison says in the beginning of Playing in the Dark is that um, white writers and black writers, all writers to some extent, you know, understand that their stories are taking place in a racialized universe. It's just a matter of wanting to admit that to yourself, yeah, out loud or not. Mm-hmm. And I think in in some ways, like the, you know, the experience of whiteness is so um, is so often kind of subliminal or just below the surface, yeah, not named, not narrated that it takes time and practice to name it and narrate it. Yeah. But it's and not that it's not there. Right. You know, what's subliminal is still, yeah. you know, still exists.
0: And so I think the question of all writing and the question of all art, like the question of living, is a matter of risk, right? right. And safety mm-hmm. and danger. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the things you had said about this, excuse me, one of the media things you was told, was that you do not want the type of danger and the risk and the trouble that comes with this book. That's right. So then what became your reasoning for going like, well, I'm going to do it anyway?
1: It was really just a sense that um, I really wanted to write a novel, and this was the novel I had in me to write at that particular moment. So really describe
0: cool. that moment. Like where, where, where is Jess Ryle? Like now we're talking about like real life. What does the real life
1: yeah. look like at that so time? So this was in what year is this? This is in two thousand eleven, I think, or two thousand ten. Okay. Um, and basically, I was I had switched agents. I had had a, one agent for about eight years. Mm-hmm. And we had gone through this whole thing where um, I had to break one contract with a publisher and I'd been working on this novel for a long time that was like this, this very slow-paced, very complicated historical novel. And I was really realizing that it wasn't working, but I was really frustrated and, and my agent was really being helpful. She was really frustrated. And the whole thing was like, it was, it, was, it was the whole process had gone on too long and I realized I needed to kind of start over. Right. So I went to my present. I talked to a bunch of agents, but I, 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 I went to the last person I talked to was the agent I wound, wound up going with, Denise Shannon. Yeah. And I explained to her, she had already read the previous novel and she said, this has big problems with it and I'm not really sure what to tell you but what else are, are you working on and I said well I have this crazy other idea that I like written 20 pages of and I have to explain it, which was this and I explained it to her yeah and she said that sounds fantastic uh, you have to work on this when can you show me more pages of it yeah and so it was that it was, it was, it was her encouragement and my feeling that like I need to start over
0: right
1: you know I, it was like this window opening and yeah. I just said I'm going to go through it no matter yeah what and knowing knowing all the you know having been warned having been yeah uh you know having been uh shooed away from this and
0: so when you wrote this like what was because even like the first book you did it was still this thing about identity Mm -hmm. exploration
1: yeah
0: but it seems more here that the gaze was turned inward instead of outward and so what for you shifted that gaze
1: um, it, you know I think a, a big part of it was the fact that it was a novel and not a book of stories so I knew I had to go way inward and also you know this is a it's a it's a kind of a fantastic premise yeah. but it's a very autobiographical book well, so it is,
0: I, I never
1: the, the autobiographical aspect like has to one do one with year. has to do with Baltimore <laughs> and me being a teenager in Baltimore and those sections of the book are really taken from my own experience okay. and it's it's the, the the Martin character, the character who transforms himself surgically into a black man, yeah. is sort of a composite of friends of mine I had at that time who were really into hip hop. These are white friends. White friends who okay. were really into hip hop, really into black culture. Yeah, and they were really, you know, they, like me. They were they were really they were kind of just like floating people. They were people who were, you know, they were kids whose lives could have gone in many different directions. Mm-hmm. There was a real sense of like indeterminacy at that moment. This is yeah. early early nineties, and these are people who also like I went off to college and I didn't see them for a long time, so that was the um, that was the like really autobiographical core of the book that really drove me, mm-hmm. um, you know, to go deep about my own psychology.
0: Yeah. At that time, and so with the with the with the plot line, what in the plot line did you feel like? What do you think the plotline gave this exploration?
1: The plot line, I mean, it gave it a sense of urgency. Okay. You know, and gave it a sense of, like, this is happening now, this is happening in the moment, this yeah. is happening in 2014.
0: Right, right, right. Okay. Um, notice, was, yeah. yeah just,
1: no. Well, I was going to say, like, it was happening in 2014 or 2013. You know, it's really it's supposed to be contemporary with the year that the novel comes out. But, of course, it couldn't happen any later than that. Because, you know, the moment that the book was published was also the moment of Ferguson. And the world really changed, and the culture really changed. In terms of, like, how? What do you feel? Well, I think, I think the conversation about... the conver- You know, after the emergence of the protest movement, the Black Lives Matter move, movement, yeah. I think that the conversation would have had to shift more to you know, those conflicts that were going on in the streets in the present. Like, if I had been writing the book two years later, I would have had to deal with that material in some ways. And then, you know, only it was only eight months later that Rachel Dolezal came into the news. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you
0: know, one of the things, and it, it took... Uh, I don't know how to pronounce the woman's name. I don't want to mispronounce it. But she had did a paper... She had did an essay, a profile on Rachel Dolezal for The Believer. Um, and basically the essay had essentially boiled down to there's nothing to see here. It's just another white woman doing what she wants to do in terms of like Rachel Dolezal because everyone has been- The
1: Believer or The Stranger? Because I read a piece in The Stranger. It might have been a Stranger. Yeah, this is when Rachel Dolezal's book came
0: out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no, it was, yeah, it's The Stranger, uh, I think. Jomo Oluo. Mm -hmm. I apologize if I pronounce your name wrong. But the piece itself is is the heart of whiteness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the whole idea of, like, just basically taking this person... It's very funny, the heart of darkness. Yeah. So, like, trying to treat, like, her, like, this is a legitimate thing. Like, she really thinks that she's black. Yeah. And it's like, when you really question her about her blackness, Mm -hmm. like, DK blackness, Mm -hmm. there's nothing really there. Right? Like, there's no depth there. Yeah. So... And then what she tries and what Rachel does are constantly when she's asked questions about a serious question about blackness, she pivots, she diverts, she goes, well, what is blackness, right? right. First, you have this very concrete idea of what you are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's something yeah. that you're not. And then when I ask you what this thing is to you, you're going, well, what is it? So it's like, right. there's this very ironic use of the identity, right? And so with her, like, you know, she was in Like, even explain, like, the fact that I'm even here Mm -hmm. talking to this woman about this Mm -hmm. is a testament of the power that, like, white people have in this culture. Mm -hmm. Where we have Mm -hmm. to take the claims of white people, whether they be fantastical or real, seriously, regardless. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think if you ever seen, you've seen AT Atlanta, that episode where, like, you have the black dude that was a 35 year old white man. Yeah. yeah. And just, like, how, (laughs) like, the comedy of it, but just, like.
1: I almost wanted a producer. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But like just the absurdity of how like oh he's obviously not white so like there's a comedy that could play itself right. out where it's like it's of course this is absurd right. but like you have the abs like this is equally absurd mm. and we're like well maybe we're gonna get we're gonna create a you know transracialism which by definition I looked it up and it was like transracialism is by definition when a white when a fam, when a family adopts a kid from another right, race. Right, that's the, that's the, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the, the worst, that's been the working yeah, definition yeah, of right, it, right, so right, it's right, like, right, right. you know, to, to legitimize this very right. false claim, right,
1: right. is
0: like, and like an essential
1: mm-hmm.
0: notion of white power.
1: There's, you know, I, I was just reading this piece this week by, um, George Yancey, who's an African-American philosopher, who's written a lot of great, uh, great books about whiteness that's really the focus of his career is studying studying race but also studying whiteness in particular as a, as a black man and he says this thing about he says that whiteness will survive um, the diversity movement it will survive ethnographic display mm. but it will also survive the um, it will also survive the fragmentation of the postmodern subject It'll survive. It'll survive the pastiche of the postmodern subject. So when Rachel Dolezal is saying like, well, what is whiteness? What is blackness? Essentially what she's saying, she's gesturing to this kind of postmodern argument about, well, what is identity? What does identity really mean? It's all constructed, blah, blah, blah. And what Yancey is saying is, okay, that's, that's fine. You know, identity is constructed. Race is absolutely constructed. It has no biological basis. But um, if your argument is basically... If your argument always reduces to, well, race is just constructed, so why does it matter anyway? Anybody can be anything they want. Right. What Yancey is saying is, whiteness will survive that. You know, whiteness, that is not a strategy for getting rid of white supremacy or white power. Because as lo- what he says is, as long as whiteness is rewarded by the forces of capital, it will remain in control. Absolutely. No matter how fragmented, no matter how yeah. pastiche, no and- matter how... How uh, yeah. stylized, right? you know, it might become.
0: And then the one thing about also whiteness is, and you say this in the book, is like, all right, if all these things are constructed, why pick it? Yeah. Like, why yeah. pick anything, man? Right. Like, why just be, why not pick clear? Right. Like, why not just be raceless? <laughs> right? Like, if if, if, yeah. if the gender, yeah. like, well, not even gender, but like, yeah. if, if these sorts of things p- puts you in a deeper trap while not avoid the trap altogether. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it, it becomes this thing uh, to to the to the effect of what you're mm-hmm. of what you're saying. Um these choices speak a lot to the power. And the, one of the things yeah. you say about the book about
1: yeah, choices our choices are always made in relation to power. Yeah. Structures.
0: Yeah. The power. So, arrangement. So in the book you talk about whiteness as something that like I don't know like the actual quote. I don't I don't like misquoting, but the you said something about basically like like whiteness is sort of like it, it, it takes away. Whereas like blackness was seen as something that like added, like whiteness mm-hmm. was something that like sort mm-hmm. of took and taken away mm-hmm. about that. So for you in your own personal life, when did is this something that you felt was true for your life, or did you this is something that was just like like an observation of Whiteness, as it pertained to other bodies.
1: No, it was definitely something that was. Let me read. You, I'm sorry. Yeah. So please. right here, yeah.
0: two forty six says, "Whiteness is tricky." Too, you know, look what happened to Michael Jackson. Of course, of course, I mean his methods were crude, but no matter what, it's always about taking something away, mm-hmm. and you italicize that word away. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's very interesting when we talk about, I think, blackness you know, brownness, like everything else, in pursuit of whiteness, you see what gets taken away, right? The mm-hmm. very dramatic thing of, like, Sammy Sosa, versus like, just not even having skin color, mm-hmm. right? Michael Jackson changing his features. But mm-hmm. with white people, the assumption is there's nothing there to begin with. So that's taking away doesn't exist in the same ways.
1: Yeah, you know, that that quote directly came from my experience of talking to plastic surgeons. Mm. And uh, one of the first things that... York classic surgeon said to me was um, it's always easier with plastic surgery to take things away than it is to add things and the reason and one of the reasons why um, the classical kind of Roman uh, classical figure of whiteness is used as a standard of beauty in plastic surgery is because for almost all people that involves like shaving off things as opposed to because I was the question I was asking was like if a if a if a white person if a typically white appearing person wanted to have African American features what would that mean? One of the things it would mean would be adding. creating a different kind of nose. And that means adding. Experience. It means adding. Right. And he said that is it's not impo- it's not impossible, but it's uh, much trickier. And it's never he said he said it's never been done. Then I talked to. Plastic surgeons in Thailand who are much more sort of like, well, we can do almost anything, and you know, we were much more it's uh, about flexi- it, right? flexible about it. <laughs> um, and it can, it can be done because you know if you look at like genital reconstruction or, or genital uh, surgery, you know there you're like in in, uh, in, in uh, um, gender reassignment surgery, there you are creating new body parts. Yeah. Um, so that you know, for me, like there was always the sense when I was growing up. Yeah that normal, regular Americanness was whiteness. Right. And that there was really a sense in which it was an absent center. You know, it was like an absent. There was a, this real sense for me of like, you know, because my parents were, were uh, they were prefe- liberal, educated professionals who had moved around a lot. Right. And didn't have a lot of a sense of particular rootedness. So there wasn't like really a deep sense of like, what are the foods of our family? yeah or like what are the uh you know like traditions or memories or customs yeah of our family right it was mostly absence you know there was not a lot to like yeah you know cling to bill
0: Burr said that like he was in the to, to the stand-up a lot of it a lot of years ago mad years ago I'm gonna stick to my colloquialism um he was talking about being on a train one day in New York and he was like this the train doors are closed on this black dude and he was like you're not gonna open the doors. He's like, I bet you he was like one of these crack ass motherfuckers, and he kept pointing at like him. And he was like, the other white guys on the on the train were kind of like, I don't have anything to do with with that. I'm here and here. And he was mm. like, there's no weed with white people. Like, mm. like you fight a black guy, even if the guy's winning, like the whole neighborhood comes out. It becomes a group effort. But <laughs> white people, it's very like individual, yeah. like by yeah. themselves, isolated. Yeah. And I just think about that in terms of like looking at that in regards to like a Charlottesville when like, when is, when in those moments when mm-hmm. the white I, individual decides to become unified, mm-hmm. you know, what that unification, what that unification looks like, yeah. or what it has looked like, yeah. versus yeah. where it's like, and then any other day, it looks,
1: it looks ugly, but also uh, pathetic and funny, right. you know, awkward, right, you know, and that's what makes it scary. like, you order yeah. the tiki torches from... from like, everyone's website. in line
0: buying the, like, the tiki torches. Yeah, and
1: the, the same white, you know, the same white shirts and khaki.
0: <laughs> like, they planned that.
1: Like, they're all, like, middle <laughs> managers from uh, Dunder Mifflin, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's like, that to me, like, that was, it was, it was, it was the, the picture of the white supremacist movement they were trying to create was something like, we are a class of, like, middle managers who are all going to be, like, displaced, who are all going to be replaced. Right. Because we're all just, uh, you know, cogs in a wheel anyway. You know? Yes. Because we're all interchangeable. And
0: now. what's funny is that the cogs in the wheel have more problem with the pavement that it rolls on than the mm-hmm. person driving the vehicle, mm-hmm. meaning that middle managers will blame lower... Like employees yeah. for their position the right. higher ups, right? Right, like right. who they identify with, who they think that the, the right. who they think who is, the the is, is their friend, is yeah. And it's like you really right. think that you're like you're like I pose a threat to your right. Colleague. It's like a middle manager
1: feels threatened by a uh, illegal immigrant from Puebla who is coming to like pick lettuce mm-hmm. and doesn't you know and, and isn't literate and Meanwhile, country. this dude
0: just like took your job yeah. and outsourced right. it. And you're like, it's because of them, right, that the It's right, right. also like, well, why is like, right. where is that man who right. decided
1: like? Or, you know your benefits and uh, your and your salary and everything about your position has been systematically chipped away through fifty years of anti-union le- legislation. right you, know, you have a job that fifty years ago would have been unionized. Mm-hmm. And now you're like a uh, you know contingent employee. Yeah, and you're mad. And yeah, and they're not at somebody money. else. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, I mean this is a, that that part is a pure the, the Bannon part is a pure, uh, you know, it's just is taken straight from the playbook of the Nazis and mm. and uh, Italian fascism and you know populist populist movements of all kinds. It's just it's the same. Yeah. that part is the same playbook. I mean, right. he was in Alabama this week running around the stage, saying like you know uh, supporting Roy Moore, who's this uh, sort of Christian fascist Canada, the one who won saying, like, uh, you know, uh, get this guy, elect this guy, and screw the elites. And Steve Bannon is, like, paid for by this billionaire, Robert Mercer. He's essentially, he's just a henchman of this of a billionaire. Yeah. And he's saying, screw the you know, he's telling these people, his narrative is, screw the elites. Damn.
0: That's real. And, like, people believe that, though.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, Roy Mar got elected, it worked. Yeah, you know, Breitbart works. Yeah. And in, I think in, in at least Well how so much, much of
0: that also, how much of that rhetoric is predicated on denial, right? Like how much of it operates on the basic emotional logic of denying things? Like rich people who I speak All to enough yeah. to learn that like they don't see themselves as rich. They're comfortable. Right. They're okay. Like it's right, 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 always right. to like yeah. it is not what it looks like. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. No, 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 we're alright. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So
1: no denial is, you uh, know, denial is is uh, uh, ubiquitous. You know, mm. it's the yeah, it's the engine of American <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> you right. American consumption.
0: So you brought a book with you. Uh uh-huh. I'm assuming this is the first book that yeah, that brought some some life right, right, to you. Right. What's yeah. the book? So this is give me a give me is, a passage. It
1: isn't. I wouldn't say this is the first book because I had a really hard time figuring out the first book. But yeah. This is a book. It's called First Love and Other Sorrows and uh this is a book that i i found in a used bookstore when i was in college in new haven um what school you went to and yale and oh, um okay. uh I like this, how you said that shit
0: like it was just like yeah i went to mcdonald's i'm, so, I'm sorry it's, <laughs> it's
1: it's it's a reflex to say well
0: is that a purposeful thing like you don't yeah, want to say yeah it's a thing. like why
1: uh, that the, that's a form of the denial. Said, because of what you just said, because of denial. <laughs> yeah, it's a form of denial. It's a, for, it's a form of like denial of, like you, dis- displacing your privilege. Yeah. Hey. That's that's you know that's what it is. It's a habit. You know, it is. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So this book was was published in the 1950s, um, and Harold Brock, he was considered this child genius, and then mm-hmm. he didn't publish another book until the 80s. Um, he was he published this book when he was in his 20s, and then he was like this major. New York literary figure and people kept saying like, when's his next book book going to come out? And he was working on this novel for like 40 years and he finally published it and it was kind of a bust actually mm-hmm. but then he he, <laughs> he published a lot of other Bronke is a really fascinating writer because he had this very long period where he didn't publish anything but then he published this novel which was a, this huge sort of messy book but he published another book of stories called um, stories in an almost classical mode which was an amazing, mind-blowing book of stories then he was diagnosed with HIV mm. and, uh, and he died in the early uh, he, was, he, was, he had been married for a long time but he was bisexual um, he had had lots of affairs with men in the 70s he was diagnosed with HIV in the early 90s he wrote an amazing book called This Wild Darkness about being diagnosed, about having AIDS mm. and then he died a year later in like late 90s um, and he published he has, he has a beautiful book of stories that came out after he died called The World Is the Home of Love and Death mm. um, and another book of essays. So he had a he had this career where like published one book, was totally inactive for four years, not totally inactive, but didn't publish another book, then had this huge burst of creativity and then and then tragically died Damn. in the middle of it. <laughs> That's crazy. But anyway, so this is so I'm just gonna read the is it okay yeah, if I read? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the first um I think the first story ever published uh, is the first story in the book, it's called The State of Grace. And um yeah, this is one uh paragraph that um I totally fell in love with at the time and it made me really gave me this intense desire to want to do what Harold Brogheat was doing. All right. So this is called this is the story is called the state of the State of Grace. There's a certain shade of red brick, a dark, almost melodious red, somber and riddled with blue, that is my childhood in St. Louis. Not the real childhood, but the false one that extends from the dawning of consciousness until the day that one leaves home for college. That one shade of red brick and green foliage is St. Louis in the summer the winter is just a grey sky and a crowded school bus and the wet footprints on the brown linoleum floor at school, and that brick and a pale sky is spring. It's also loneliness, loneliness excuse me. It's also loneliness and the queer self pitying wonder that children whose families are having catastrophes feel.
0: Mm. I like that. It's just like a perfect So a perfect you, you 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 prefaced that with saying the thing that he did that made you what was the thing you felt like he did that you wanted to like not copy but like follow yeah
1: pr- like in like pursuit there's this amazing there's this total sense of confidence and authority mm. like what i'm saying there's a certain shade of brick that is my whole childhood mm. right so that's a that's a metonymy the part standing in for the whole it's any it is total uh authority and belief in that Mm-hmm. in that assertion that he can sum up his world that way yeah. and it's, it's just that, that um, the assertion and that, then the, the way that it grows out and, it's, and, it, and it becomes about this queer pitying feeling so it's not just like uh, a color that reminds me of childhood but it yeah. reminds me of this queer pitying feeling that children whose families are having catastrophes feel Right. so it's a sense of like it reminds me of this feeling of this you know this 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 complicated feeling
0: yeah
1: of self-pity and of instability not knowing what's going to happen next yeah wounded pride wounded dignity and that's what the that's what the story is about it's a story that's about uh, losing coming from a family with a lot of wealth mm. and then his father dies and the family is in poverty Damn. And so they, they like live in a nice house, but then the father dies and they have to move into this like apartment that's, it's not, it's not a shitty apartment, but it's right. like, it's a step down. In the world.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, it's, you know, that, that, the, the way that he was able to distill all that into a paragraph, yeah. that's what, you know, that, that's what, that's the kind of thing that made me a short story writer because it's like a, a string quartet. Or like a really good pop song. Yeah, It distills a lot of complexity into a tiny, tiny space. Ooh, I like that. We've never had a lot of language
0: on poetry. mm -hmm. Never had language on what makes a short story a short
1: story. Yeah, well, the short story is, you know, the short story is, you know, all about compression in the same way that the uh, poems are about compression. But the thing is with a short story, what you're compressing is... Uh, to a certain degree what you're compressing is time and experience mm. so there has to be some feeling of like time going on with poems you know lyric poem doesn't have to have any feeling of time going on and on at all because it's just for, like reflection in the moment but a story has to have some sense of like time passing events happening but it has to be like it has to be brought within this like this like kind of orb you know mm. it has to it has it's to feel it has to it has to feel like it you know like the the beginning exactly matches the end, you know? And so so that way, that's in some sense, like that's why it's like a pop song because a pop song has to end in a way where it feels like you want to go right back and listen to the song again. Like a loop. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: Well, speaking of loops, and I was looking, I think like to have you read this before you head out, but uh, it's one of the recordings Mm -hmm. that um, Kelly listens to of Martin Mm -hmm. before his transition. It was the one about language. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a dope. It's like a good length and I think it has a good body to it. It feels in itself like a show story. Okay. So So where do you want me
1: to stop? Yeah, you read that. The whole thing? Yeah, that's enough. Chapter 18? That's that's, that's good. That's good. Sounds good. All right. I haven't read this in a long time. (laughs) Recording number three. Mm -hmm. Source Sony cassette tape 90 minutes condition plus, which means good. Labeled, side one, tape three, private, do not destroy. When did I first know I was white? Not at Shabazz. No, sir. Of course, I knew I was the color white. I knew I was a black. I knew I wasn't Mexican or Korean or Puerto Rican. But when did I know I was white as a thing in itself, as something to be? At Roland Park, at Willow. At Roland Park, at Willow, where there were other white people. The funny thing is, it was all a little artificial at first. I had to be told. When I arrived at RP, I spoke, effectively, black English. Not consciously, not at home, but I had a school vocabulary. I addressed the teachers as they expected to be addressed. Where Darnell at? He on the jungle jib, Miss Dixon. It's just idiom after all. Any child can pick it up. And at Shabazz, no one thought it was funny. Nobody thought I was funny. Sad, maybe, a little, but not funny. But at Roland Park, the teachers were in a panic. The second or third day, I'll never forget this, They had a meeting with me, my teacher, the principal, dad, of course, and a speech pathologist. Martin, Mrs. Richards said, that was my teacher. It's not wrong to speak that way if you want. It's not hurting anybody. But there's such a thing as standard English, and that's what we speak at this school. We don't want you to be uncomfortable here. I'm not uncomfortable, I said. And we don't want you to make anyone else uncomfortable, without meaning to. Ashante, for example. You like Ashante, right? Didn't she share her cupcake with you at lunch? You don't want her to think you're making fun of her. That's when I started to cry. What was I supposed to think? And Dad, I looked over at Dad, and he was just kind of puzzled and amused. Don't worry, he said. You want your little chameleon to change colors. He'll change soon enough. Mm. They didn't think that was funny either. But you know who really took offense after all that fuss? Malik Williams. Remember him? His son was in my class. The son columnist. The first black columnist they they hired though he lasted all of five minutes. He was an old-school firebrand, an Al Sharpton wannabe, with a big head of dreadlocks and a beard, scary Rasta-style, though he was local, West Side through and through. He was fired in a plagiarism scandal, accused of stealing copy from some other columnist in Atlanta. Of course, he sued and lost. Major news in Baltimore in the mid-'80s. In any case, his son Stokely came home and told him that there was a white kid at Roland Park trying to talk like a brother, and he just hit the roof. Demanded a meeting with the principal, wanted to meet with Dad, too. He called it cross-racial experimentation. Wrote a column about it, too. What kind of perverse linguistic experiment is going on at Roland Park Elementary School? Why are they teaching white children to speak pigeon black English? And Stokely, God, Stokely was such a nice kid. He was really caught in the middle. He even said to me, Dad told me I should give you a beatdown. He was the tiniest kid in the class. Couldn't have beat me in arm wrestling but it worked. After that, I shut up, stopped talking in class altogether. No one said anything about it. I think they were relieved. Took me almost an entire year, most of third grade, and then when I opened my mouth again, I was white. Dad was right. I hardly remembered being in Shabazz. To spare myself from having to explain it, I used to tell people I'd been at RP since kindergarten, and hardly anyone ever questioned me about it. I mean, I was happy, wasn't I? You know what it's like there. It's a good school. A little island of happiness with a well-fortified PTA. Those jungle gyms get repainted every year, and that library has story time in three different languages. They don't sell off the new textbooks and use the old ones at RP. I'd send my kids there in a heartbeat. Those were the happiest years of my life, you could say, once I settled in, so to speak, third grade up until middle school. Well, it's a latency period, isn't it? In more ways than one. Transsexuals, you know, they say the same thing. Prepubescent children are allowed to be androgynous to a degree. They can play at cross-dressing. They can engage in all kinds of imaginative fooling around. Or in some cases, they can just be nothing, ungendered, sexless, curveless, living only in their heads. That must that must have been me. Once I knew I was white, once I was told, once I was reminded, I just sort of relaxed into being nothing at all. I spent no time outside in the neighborhood, none at all. If I played outside of school it was at friends' houses or on Roland Avenue. For a few years, I spent every afternoon till five at the Roland Park Library across the street from school. Dad picked me up there, and then when I was a little older, I started taking the bus down to Hawkins to meet him on campus. That was a pretty genteel existence, comparatively speaking. Roland Park, excuse me, Roland Park blots out the rest of the world pretty damn well. And then I went on to Willow. There was no option really after that. Dad wanted me to go to Northern Middle, but the guidance counselor at Roland Park had some kind of private meeting with him and convinced him that he didn't want a dead son. What was allowable, what might slip under the radar at Shabazz, was not to be tolerated after grammar school. Thus our apartheid system proceeds. So I was set up with the SSAT and went on interviews, all kinds of aptitude tests, and Willow was the one that wanted me. I'll never forget the first time Dad took me out there. It was in April, early April, just this time of year. Trees bare, chilly, rainy. We came up the driveway, past the horse barn, past the pasture, the lacrosse field, the other lacrosse field, Hmm. you know, round at the top of the hill, saw the lake, the theater, and the trees all around, trees that seemed unending in every direction. I mean, talk about a brand, talk about impact, Hmm. the Willow School, as in, You are going to school in the Enchanted Forest. Mm. And that was before I even saw the swans. Who goes to a school with swans? People call it a country club. It's not a country club. It's a sacred grove. How can you not feel special? How can you not feel, like, elected to be there? Mm. Up to that point, believe me, I'd worked hard, so hard, at being average. I followed football, baseball, and basketball. It drove Dad crazy. I listened to Z-100. Whatever the big movie was, I wanted to go. After Top Gun, I had the little bomber jacket and the aviator glasses. Frankly, I would have been happiest in the suburbs. I had a friend, Carl, whose dad lived out in Owings Mills. I had a sleepover there once. Typical ranch house. Basketball hoop in the driveway. We played in the sprinklers and went to Chuck E. Cheese for dinner. I thought that was paradise. So you see, Willow was a shock. Whatever it is, it wasn't normal. Look down the hall. You've got the pimply 8th graders hunched over their magic cards. You've got Sheila Puckner practicing her Ophelia monologue. Dr. Kendricks arguing with Jason Kornbluth about the second law of thermodynamics. You've got kids learning to play epistrophe on the xylophone. And kids sneaking out into the woods to smoke clove cigarettes. God, I hated it at first. I'd worked so hard not to be a freak, and here I practically had to be one. Mm.
0: I like that. I think that's a, that's a really. That good was chat. fun. I mean, that was a good chapter. Haven't, I
1: haven't seen that passage in a long <laughs> it, time.
0: And you read it like and you read it. You read it with that with that life that really gives it a body. Well, thank you. Um, thank you, man. This is this is this is this is really good. So, you know, usually this is the point of show where <sighs> I bless you with the lit pen. Oh, that's honestly. yours. Yeah,
1: look at this thing. That's yours. I really feel like I'm in the
0: WWF. <laughs> you know, your name is on the on the box, so people, so you know, so you know what wow. yours. We personalize things here. Wow. So, where can, what what do you have any events coming up? I know you're like you're on sabbatical from from teaching. I am. you teach teaching at NYU. Uh,
1: well, I teach at the College of New Jersey. College of New Jersey, the which last year you live I, by, I was with. teaching at NYU, yeah. and I live in. You're on the fellowship right now. I'm on the, yeah, I have a Guggenheim fellowship right now. What, is the,
0: what is, Explain to people who see that, who don't know, what is a Guggenheim? Yeah.
1: I'm going to have to put that on later. Um, this is so great. So the Guggenheim fellowship is one of the main fellowships that writers get when they're at the stage in their career where they published a couple of books and they've achieved some success uh, it's a, it's a called it like a mid-career um, fellowship which right. means you've gotten a certain amount of success the Guggenheim Foundation thinks that you're a promising you know writer with like a good career underway and they want to give you some money for a yeah. work in progress so basically it allows you to have time when you're not working when you're yeah. not teaching or doing anything now else.
0: translate that into dollar
1: value uh, $50,000 there you go so like I think that's actually the average and, and this is like before taxes? Unfortunately it's before taxes and you do have to pay taxes on it. So it actually works out to not that much money. So what I is mean, it what in is the, it in the in the sense that like what does it work if you out actually like? want to support yourself?
0: Yeah, so if from fifty it goes down to like forty.
1: It depends on your tax bracket. Oh damn. Yeah. Shit. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, in the spirit of denying people's Economic standpoint, actually, <laughs> <like it is. laughs> Well, I don't.
1: I don't actually know. There's, there's another kind of denial. My wife, my wife does our taxes. All
0: right. So, um, any events
1: coming up? Yeah. So I'm reading in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts on Monday. That's October second. Okay. Amherst Books, eight o'clock. In okay. case there's anyone out there who lives in the, in the Happy Valley, the Pioneer Valley. The Happy Valley. That's what they call. What else? Um, and after that, the next, the only other thing I'm really doing in the fall is I am going to be participating in this amazing conference called Thinking Its Presence, which is a conference on race and creative writing. I'm doing a couple of events there. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing an a, a onstage conversation with a novelist named Julie Iremwania, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, had published a, an amazing novel that came out a couple of years ago called Mr. and Mrs. Doctor. And we are going to be talking about writing about race with a sense of humor. Mm. Always a difficult, tricky subject. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about. So that's if you're in Tucson, Arizona, October seventeenth through nineteenth. Cool. And Wait. other than that, I am you know I am hunched down at my desk doing working on what away you want to share list. with the people what you're working on. Yeah, so I'm working on a, a book of essays um. that is uh, in some ways a continuation of Your Face and Mine. It's about uh, Race in the American Imagination. It's called White Flights. It's going to be published by Gray Wolf uh, most likely in early 2019, Ooh. which is not that far away, but that's come on people need to know these books before they drop so that they know. have it That's right. So um, that's, that's my next book is White Flights and then I'm working on, a, on another novel that will come out sometime after that called The New Earth um, Yeah, is,
0: this, is it a post-apocalyptic wasteland with people with Yeezy's?
1: No, oh, okay. no. It's it's actually. Uh, it's also. It's it's weirdly it's set in two thousand fourteen, so it's like before. It's a, like a pre-Trump novel. It, it, it starts to stop in as Pre-Trump, like
0: like America ain't all Trump. Well, that's the thing, you know.
1: <laughs> it, well, exactly. It's like a, but you know, it, it it's about um, like he like
0: he marks some sort of line history. Like
1: I don't like. Well, I, I mean, I think he. I think I think he did, but. Uh, all of the forces that were, you know, around to make him what he was were already. They imposed. converged. Yeah. They was like a, a childhood century type situation. Yeah. Pre convergence.
0: Okay. Where um, yeah. can people follow you? They want to keep in touch with, with the brilliance.
1: Uh, Facebook. And uh, my website is Jessro.com. Yeah. What else? That's it. And that's, that's it. That's I'm, I'm right. off. I'm off Twitter for the moment because there was a lot of like uh, threats from white supremacists last year when I published a I published a piece in the New Republic called "What Are White Writers For," and that that you know got a lot of people upset. You know, people on the uh, you know the uh, what is yeah. it Pepe the Frog side of things. Right? Uh, okay. You know, the alt right. You got to stay. You got to stay low. Yeah. So I, you know I want to get back on Twitter. Uh, but, um, I have a hard time keeping up. I'm on Instagram too, but I hardly ever, yeah, you, know, I mean, you know, I can do one platform at a time. <laughs> Cause that's the demographic yeah. that I'm in. I'm in the Facebook demographic. Yeah. It's like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. You do Snapchat? No, that's the thing. <laughs> the snap, Snapchat is I wonder funny. what it's a writer's Snapchat like
0: will look like. Like if I followed a writer on Snapchat, like what would their Snapchat Aren't there any? I'm the, Must I'm be the younger, the, the younger, younger the, writers. The younger, younger writers. Yeah.
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Literary swag before you get out of here.
1: Literary swag. Yeah.
0: Before you get out of here. Yeah. Your three writers. My three writers. And your three clothing designers.
1: Yeah, you know you at you did this with me like. Is it the same? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I would say like definitely in terms of clothing designers like. Pull up the. You know, I remember it was Uniqlo. It was, um. You know, Uniqlo, Muji See, I wasn't one of them last time. Yeah. And I would say Kevin. Alright. You know. I love Team Ke- Sanchez. Alright. I, I love Kevin's stuff. Okay. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Said he no fucks. <laughs> Alright, and then the And, and the, then and the writers? Yeah. James Baldwin. Okay. Uh I would say James Baldwin, Nadine Gordimer. That wasn't on there first. Yeah. Well, you know, it's always it changed that's why you asked the question. Yeah. James time. Baldwin, Nadine Gordimer. And, uh, you know, if I had to pick one, I would say, you know, sort of, you know, this is always a, like James Baldwin, Nadine Gordimer, Maxine Hong Kingston.
0: Okay. So this has been another episode of Lit. Make sure you follow my man, Jess Robbie. You're on the lookout for this new book, White Flight 2019. This has been another Liddy Fontaine Pink Pig Productions. Follow the Pink Pig Production team at Pink Pig Pro. Follow me at Yadon. Follow the show on the platform and follow my man, Cyril Jules, who's playing the music that keeps this show super lit. We out there.